All right, so we're going through the Minor Prophets, and today is Zechariah. I remember Zechariah, I remember the last three books, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, because they kind of, do they rhyme? Sounds like they're Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. I don't know, it flows. Uh, and those last three are post-exilic prophets, so that makes it easy for me as well to remember. So post-exilic means they are, well, we're going to get into this in the video, so I'm not going to explain right now. Uh, we're going to watch a little video on this. But what I, how I want to set it up um, is to talk about what prophecy does. Because I think a lot of times we think of Old Testament prophecy as they predicted way ahead of time what was going to happen. Um, because a lot of times we think that's what prophecy means, but when you look at the prophets, there's, there's not a lot of that that happens. They're speaking to people at the time about things that are going on at the time. Um, now, as I was reading Zechariah, it struck me that there's a lot, there's more things in Zechariah that seem to be about things that happened way later than any of the other prophets that that at least I've been around for that we've talked about this this time. Um, but my, so I want to say my personal, or my interpretation of the prophets, and it's not, I mean, I got it from other people too, but um, I don't think prophecy works where, the, where God told them about something like Jesus was going to do, and they said it, and everybody's like, mm, we're not sure what that means, and but maybe, you know, maybe later, or anything like that. So, I think it had to have a meaning for the time, and then, of course, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit knows and God knows what's going to happen in the future, and so what happens in the future is done in a way to, I don't know exactly how to, to, to articulate this, does he have it done the first time so that it'll apply to the future, or does he make it happen in the future in a way that calls back to what happened in the past, something like this, but we're going to get in several of these passages. But so uh, as we go through um, some passages in Zechariah, it's 14 chapters, so we're not going to read the whole thing today. But if you have 30 minutes later today, you might want to go through and read the whole thing. Um, I had a meaning in their own time and context, but point forward to a bigger fulfillment as well. So sometimes... This is called typology. Um, and typology means that it, it happened and that creates a type. I wonder if the word meme has that meaning now. I don't know. It almost <laughs> creates a meme. It took me a long time to understand what people say when they say meme. So I'm not sure this is right. And I need. I, often need to remind myself, don't try to stay, say, hip on these things, because I don't... I think it. meme works. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So, it's a type. So, it's, it's a type is like a, a pattern, it's, and this is the first part of the pattern. And then, when it happens later, the way it happens in prophecy is it's fulfilled in a... So, here's a famous example. So, in Isaiah 7, Isaiah says, as a sign to the king at the time, a virgin will give birth to a son, we called Emmanuel or something like that. Um, I think that's right, Emmanuel. 
And that actually was about a woman in Isaiah's time who was going to have a baby, not a virgin birth, but she's a virgin at the time that Isaiah says that. She has a baby in the normal way as assigned to the king. And then in Matthew's gospel, he says this fulfills what was said in Isaiah, that a virgin will conceive and give birth. And this time it's ramped up a little bit because it's an actual virgin giving birth. You understand what I'm saying here? So it's, it's not the case that the prophets are just predicting exactly what's going to happen and nobody really understood it until it happened in Jesus' time. It's that there's a, you might call it double fulfillment or something like that, or typology. So... Um, we're going to keep all this in mind as we look at Zechariah. You have the yeah. foretelling versus foretelling. Yeah. Kind of yeah. distinction. It's not. Because, yeah. you know, usually foretellers are kind of looked down upon in the Old Testament. Mm. You know, when Saul goes to the Witch of Endor. And I think in Deuteronomy, there's some like, don't go to these, you know, yeah. sorcerers, soothsayers, soothsayers yeah. you know. And so it's, you know, the prophets aren't just like yeah. soothsayers, it's actually about here and now, while also kind yeah. of that future meaning. Too. Yeah. And that's really a program on Halloween as well with the fortune telling. Yeah, got to watch out for them. <laughs> we were in New Orleans last weekend, and there's a lot of fortune telling down there. <laughs> you can, I mean, they set little tables in the Jackson Square, and you can get your fortune told. I guess we didn't do it. We should have. <laughs> you, would have yeah. known, you would have known what questions you were going to get asked in class. I know. <laughs> I would have seen that happen. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you're not supposed to do that. Yeah, so it's interesting because, yeah, pro- being a prophet means you're talking about what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and God is revealing things to you. And, and Zechariah does get visions, but those visions had to have a meaning for his audience, and it wasn't just about something that's going to happen. Now, there is a stream of interpretation, which I don't agree with, on Zechariah that, that thinks it's about things that are still future to us. Yeah. Um, but we'll get into that in a little bit. <coughs> Anything else before we... So the Bible Project does a good job on this, and for those of us who haven't read Zechariah recently... <laughs> uh, Gets it back on the table. Can I turn the lights down? Does that work? Right. It's about eight minutes long. I'm going to stop it in the middle of them. So. The book of the prophet Zechariah. The book is set after the return of the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem. And we're told in the book of Ezra that Zechariah and Haggai together challenged and motivated the people to rebuild the temple and look for the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, long ago, Jeremiah the prophet had said that Israel's exile would last for 70 years, and that afterwards God would restore his presence to a new temple and bring his kingdom and the rule of the Messiah over all nations. The dates at the beginning of this book tell us that those 70 years are almost up. But life back in the land was hard, and it seemed like none of these promises were going to come true. Why? And the book of Zechariah offers an explanation. It has a fairly clear design. There's an introduction, which sets the tone for a large collection of Zechariah's dream visions. And that's concluded by chapters 7 and 8. And this is followed by two more large collections of poetry and prophecy. Let's just dive in and see how the book works. 
It begins with Zechariah's challenge to his generation to turn back to God and not be like their ancestors who rebelled and refused to listen to the earlier prophets, which landed them in exile. And so now the returned exiles respond positively to Zechariah. They repent and humble themselves before God, or so it seems. The next large section is a collection of eight nighttime visions that Zechariah experienced. And just to prepare you, these are full of very bizarre, strange images, a lot like your dreams. The idea that God communicates to people through symbolic dreams, it's very old. It goes back to the book of Genesis. The dreams of Jacob, or Joseph, or Pharaoh. These gave meaning to current events at the time, but they also gave a window into the future. And so Zechariah has his own dreams now, and they've been arranged in this really cool symmetrical design. The first and the last visions are about four horsemen each. They're like rangers patrolling the world on God's behalf, and it's a representation of God's attentive watch over the nations. Their report is that the world is at peace. And in Zechariah's day, this refers to how God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon bring peace. And so the question now arises, the 70 years of Israel's exile are almost up, is now the time for the messianic kingdom in Jerusalem? And God responds by saying that he's determined to fulfill those promises, but he leaves the question of timing unanswered. The second and seventh visions are paired because they're both reflections on Israel's past sin that led up to the exile. So the second vision is about these horns that symbolize the nations that attacked and then scattered Israel, Assyria, and Babylon. But then these horns or empires are themselves scattered by a group of blacksmiths, an image for Persia. The seventh dream is about a woman in a basket, and we're told that she's a symbol of the centuries of Israel's covenant rebellion. And then this woman is carried off to Babylon by other women who carry the basket flying with stork wings. This is so strange. The third and sixth visions are paired, as they're both about the rebuilding of a new Jerusalem. So a man is measuring the city. It's an image of God's promise that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and become a beacon to the nations who will join God's people in worship. And then the sixth dream is about a scroll that flies around the new Jerusalem, punishing thieves and liars, the idea being that the new Jerusalem is a place that's purified from sin by the scriptures. The fourth and fifth visions are at the center of this collection, and they're about the two key leaders among the returned exiles. So Joshua, the high priest, and then Zerubbabel, the royal descendant of David. So Joshua had been symbolically wearing Israel's sin in the form of these dirty clothes, but then those are taken off, and he's given new clothes and a new turban, a symbol of God's grace and forgiveness. And then an angel tells Joshua that if he remains faithful to God, he will lead his people, and Joshua will become a symbol of the future messianic king. The other vision is about two olive trees that supply oil to this elaborate gold lamp, which itself is a symbol of God's watchful eye over his people. And these two trees symbolize the two anointed leaders, Joshua and then Zerubbabel, who is leading the temple rebuilding efforts. And God says that success will not come to this new temple if it's the result only of political maneuvering. Rather, these two leaders must be dependent upon the work of God's Spirit. The visions come to a close with a bonus vision from the prophet, and it picks up the themes of the central fourth and fifth visions. It's Joshua, the high priest again, and he's given a crown and presented as a symbol of the future Messiah, who will also be a priest over God's kingdom. And then Zechariah closes it all out, saying that all of these visions will be fulfilled only if the current generation is faithful to God and obeys the terms of the covenant. 
And so altogether, these three visions emphasize how the coming of the messianic kingdom is conditional upon this generation being faithful to God. Which leads to the conclusion of the dreams. It's another challenge from Zechariah. And a group of Israelites come, and they've been mourning over the former temple's destruction for nearly 70 years. And they ask him, is it time to stop grieving? I mean, is God's kingdom going to come very soon? And Zechariah again reminds them of how their ancestors rejected God's call through the prophets, which led to the exile. And so he challenges them too. He says, this generation will see the messianic kingdom only if they pursue justice and peace and remain faithful to the covenant. So in other words, Zechariah reverses their question. He asks, are you going to become the kind of people who are ready to receive and participate in God's coming mm -hmm. kingdom? And that question is left just hanging there. The people don't answer, and the book just moves on. And okay. Um, anybody have some thoughts on anything in that first book? Um, yeah. Well, the only thing I was going to say was that the the matching, like the one through four, yeah. I, mm -hmm. that occurs a lot. As I'm, my wife has introduced me to, I, that stuff occurs a lot in the Old Testament, and so it usually means to bring out, like, pay attention to this. Yes, and that's really something I wanted to talk about because, you know, these visions, um, and as you read them, they're they're like this is weird, really weird. You know, a woman in a basket. I don't know if this has ever been done in Otter Creek's uh, Halloween parade of Bible characters. Has anybody ever done a woman in a basket? That would be cool awesome. with stork wings, uh, women yeah. carrying them. I mean, people would be like, what in the world? That's not in the Bible. Because it, it's hard to remember that that's in the Bible. So there's a woman put in a basket, and she's called wickedness, and this uh, stone cover is put on the basket, and then these women with stork wings fly the basket to Babylon. <laughs> so, I don't know, as I was reading this, I thought, this is a Halloween-appropriate book to read. <laughs> um, and it's, a, it's symbolizing that, that the wickedness of the people is being taken away. And Babylon was a place where idol worship happened and things like that. So it's more appropriate there than here. Something like that. Um, but you know, the way that those visions work, I think is important because this is what we call apocalyptic. So those four horsemen, we we meet those horse horses again in Revelation, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, and in Zechariah, they, there's a red and a black and a white and a dappled, different colors for different things. And when you read that in the book of Revelation, some people read it very literally and they try to, and to me that's not understanding the genre that that's being presented. It's like if you see a donkey and an elephant in a political cartoon and you didn't know what they represented, you'd be like, why is there a donkey and an elephant there? But if you know what they mean, you know what they mean and it's you don't really see it as a donkey and an elephant, you see it as Democrat and Republican. So, if people that were familiar with the apocalyptic type of genre, and Zechariah is an early representative of that, that way of seeing visions and then talking about them, um, I think Zechariah really did see visions, 
But then he has to write about the visions, and when you write about your dreams, you ever tried to write about your dream? I mean, just describing a dream to somebody, I was like, this sounds crazy, but this is what happened, you know. It's, it's, anyway. Trying, um, to write, trying to write about your dreams, but not interpret. Uh, that's that's the hard yeah. part, is that yeah. just to write the facts and not go into and what And I it means. think the way they write them is helping the interpret. I mean, they're, they're writing them so that they can be interpreted. Here's, a, here's what all this point is. Um, so in the book of Revelation, those visions, I think, are repeating some of the same themes about, I mean, they're not, every vision doesn't, some people read Revelation as each vision, this vision ends, it's about one thing, and then something's going to happen later that's about the second thing. And then instead, they're all rehashing the same event. And to me, in the book of Revelation, has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem and Rome, and Rome eventually being destroyed, um, punished. Um, yeah, Rome eventually being destroyed. So, and that's just repeated several times. And I see that pattern in Zechariah too, where all those things are really referring to they're repeating the same thing, apocalyptic literature. Um, and then it's interesting too how this, I guess Zechariah is open to is is this going to happen? Um, and you have Joshua, who's the high priest. Uh, guess who in the New Testament is named Joshua? Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> the answer in Bible class is always Jesus. In this case, I, it was Jesus. Jesus is Greek for. Joshua. So, this is a typology thing again. And then we have Zerubbabel, who is the king. And in Zechariah, the king and the priest are together. And that's what happens with Jesus when we have, he's both a priest and a king. The book of Hebrews talks about this. It doesn't mention Zechariah as much as it mentions Melchizedek. So, um, so you have a prophet and priest figure together in Messiah in ways so that look forward to Jesus. Okay. Let's finish this. That are very different from chapters 1 to 8. Each section is a kaleidoscopic collage of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. So the first one, chapters 9 to 11, describe the coming of the humble messianic king who's riding a donkey into the new Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom over the nations. But then, all of a sudden, this king, he's symbolized as a shepherd over the flock of Israel, and then he's rejected first by his own people, but then also by their leaders, who are also symbolized as shepherds. And so God hands Israel over to these corrupt shepherds, and it raises the question, will Israel's rejection of their king last forever? In the final section, chapters 12 to 14, say no. It's another mosaic of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. And they depict the new <coughs> Jerusalem as a place where God's justice will finally confront and defeat evil among the nations. It's very similar to the same themes in Prophet Joel or Ezekiel. But then God also will confront the rebellion within the hearts of his own people. He's going to pour out his spirit on them, he says, so that they can repent and grieve over the fact that they have rebelled and rejected their messianic shepherd. 
The final chapter concludes with the new Jerusalem. That's the gathering point for all of the nations. And then the city becomes a new Garden of Eden. And there's a river of living water flowing out of the temple, bringing healing to all of creation. And that's how the book ends. And so Zechariah just leaves you to ponder the connection between chapters 1 through 8 and 9 to 14. And the point seems to be that this future messianic kingdom of the book's second half will only come when God's people are faithful to the covenant, the point of the first half. Reading the book of Zechariah is a wild ride. These visions and poems are full of startling imagery, and they do not follow a linear flow of thought. And that's part of the point. It's like history and our lives. It doesn't always fit into neat, orderly patterns. But the prophets offer us glimpses of God's hand at work, guiding history towards his own purposes. And so ultimately, Zechariah invites us to look above the chaos and hope for the coming of God's kingdom, which should motivate faithfulness in the present. And that's what the book of Zechariah is all about. All right, did you see anything in that? Um, well, I'm sure you did. Did you pick up on... Um, those last Creation, two chapters. Um, so Zechariah just leaves you to ponder to the connection between on. chapters 1 through 8 and 9 through oh, yeah. 14. You're right. <laughs> okay, boomer. Um, yeah, those last two things about uh, the king riding in on a donkey. Mm-hmm. Where does that happen? You know, and then the shepherd being rejected by the people and the leaders, uh, and then the spirit being poured out, uh, and people repenting and realizing. I mean, that's you. You got the. You see all the connections there. It's, it really is amazing um, how how many of those connections. Yeah. Once you see the New Testament, like I don't know that you would be able to predict from those predictions what happened. But once the the thing with Jesus happens, you go back and read this, and you're like, oh wow, okay, it's like mm-hmm. a mystery novel. Once you know who done it, you go back and read. Oh yeah, now I see all those things. You you can put it all together. Yeah. Anything else stick out to you from that last part or questions or? Um, that that river of life flowing out from the New Jerusalem, I think it was in Joel when we were going through Joel that Joel used the same mm-hmm. imagery, and also in Revelation mm-hmm. you have this yeah. river of life coming from the temple. Um, so it's just cool to see all these different mm-hmm. kind of prophetic books using this same imagery yeah. to describe. Um, yeah, you know. Book of Revelation just is. Can't really understand it appropriately unless you know all, mm-hmm. all the things he's pulling from. But yeah, that river of life, um, and it, and Revelation is even stronger because you have the, the trees that grow and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it it does make me. I don't know anything about the political side of Israel. But I do understand how, if you've grown up hearing this, how you as a country believe that God is going to bless you. Like, just you are the country, and you should have all this power. Because that's, I mean, kind of what they're, all the prophecies seem to be about is that Israel is going to be redeemed. Israel is going to be this wonderful nation again. And so it's, 
to me, it's a lesson in making sure that my prophecies and spiritual life stay here, not all of the time. Just everything, like if I go purchase something, it's not God ordained. Like, there's there's a difference. So you're talking about modern day Israel yeah. and how they could yeah. see this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the way it's fulfilled according to Christian reading of it, right? It's fulfilled in a, you know, not a literal way at all because it's not the nation of Israel that is mm-hmm. that it's not literal Jerusalem that that all the nations are coming to. It's more of a spiritual. Jerusalem, and it's the church, really. The kingdom is the church where we're supposed to be the ones where this is this is done. Um, so I can definitely see how if you're a Jewish person today, you're like, well, that's not. What. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, you're kind of co-opting. Um, what's the word when you dress up like a culture that you're not? Cultural appropriation. Yeah, it's cultural appropriation. <laughs> and, and there is... Sometimes between Judaism and Christianity today, you know, they're saying we have to be careful of not just saying, oh, we'll take that. You know. yeah. um, mm-hmm. But on another level, if Jesus was really the Messiah, I mean, that's the basic question, then these things do all kind of fit together. And, and the Old Testament does end with more to be there's it's not and it doesn't end and everybody's like okay that's the end it ends with the question mark of how's this all going to happen and then christianity comes out as one way to finish it yeah 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 one thing that i had is like the guy in the video described it as he tells them what their future could be or what it's going to be depending on what they're doing in the present Mm -hmm. and that can either sway them to Mm -hmm. get this wonderful river of life or be exiled again like he's saying the mm-hmm. first thing yeah. and that's one thing I realized like every prophet has the same not the same message but the same purpose yeah. like here's what you did wrong here's what you can do to make it better or you can have the same result yeah. you choose so. and the, I would say all the prophecies even the ones that don't state the condition are all conditional yeah. so there's unstated conditional I think um, it's implied that this is going to happen if now I guess we could say that since God sends Jesus in the Christian worldview Jesus our God finally says okay I am going to make this happen yeah. um, does God ever tell his people he's sending prophets does he say like, in does advance he, does, yeah does he say you're not getting it I'm sending you people who will help you get it or do these people just kind of appear and because you know we have judges and we have kings but prophets I feel like are this kind of enigma of we have Haggai who is no one hardly ever knew mm-hmm. and these other people who are more well known so like how how yeah. how is a prophet deemed a prophet is it only after or is he oh does he proclaim himself yeah. and say I am a prophet yeah there's some things in uh, Jeremiah, I think, about the way you know somebody's a true prophet is if what they say happens. <laughs> 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 Which is like, okay, that's not really helpful at the moment they're right. saying it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and there's also uh, a place for prophecy with a king. So the king, the royal court, has a, like a, there's a prophetic role within that. 
of course, that's prime for people to say things the king wants to hear. I mean, this is this is me at a at a Bible faculty meeting. I'm like, what do you want to hear? Because that's what I'm going to say. I'm, I'm tired of. Well, I don't think we should do that. <laughs> I mean, you see that in the book I almost say that every single meeting. Like, you see that in the book of Daniel, like where yeah. mm-hmm. you know Daniel is, is the one who's not saying exactly what the king wants to hear. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and that was something in the introduction lesson. I pointed out was in like Assyrian mm-hmm. prophetic tradition, how you knew if it was a true prophet or a false prophet was if the king liked it. <laughs> if, if the king liked it, it's then true. and it's a, yeah, it was true. Yeah. Um, versus if it was against the king and whatever, then it was a false prophecy. And that the role of the prophets basically was to reinforce and legitimize like the decisions the king made and provide some guidance. There's some of that conditional, you know, well if you do this, then this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. But the Hebrew prophets are very different, which <laughs> they're almost antagonistic to the royal family. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to like Elijah and the, uh, Ahab, you have this constant kind of, and so, um, I guess from the Assyrian tradition, you would say, oh well, that's a false prophet because mm-hmm. it's yeah. against the royal family. Yeah. And post-exilic prophets are more positive. And you now Zerubbabel is not really a king; he's mm-hmm. a governor. They never really have a king um, until like the Herods. Um, the Maccabees, I guess you can say, or in intertestamental. But Zerubbabel, you know, he's king-ish, but not, not like David and Solomon, those types. Um, okay. So we already talked about that. Um, so I want to just go through some of the things in Zechariah that are clearly uh, redone in the in the New Testament. Um, so chapter nine: Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! Look, your king is coming to you. He is legitimate and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a young young donkey, the foal of a female donkey. Uh, I'll remove the chariot from Ephraim and wars from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be removed. Then he will announce peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. And this is referred to in the triumphal entry in Jesus as being fulfilled because Jesus rides in on a donkey. Mm -hmm. Now, my understanding of the Jewish kings is that they, they rode on donkeys. Um... So it wasn't like it's not a claim to royalty, but it's different from riding in on a stallion. So it's it's royalty combined with humility. And that's where we see Jesus doing it as, you know, it is, that's kind of one of the ways he says, hey, I'm the king, I'm the king of the Jews, which he has really tried to push away uh, prior. Um, but there's also a humility in that he's riding in on a donkey and not not a war horse. And that's, Zechariah has that uh, in as well. Do you think the reason Jesus told the disciples specifically to get a donkey that never ridden before was to, like, was he manipulating the situation to make sure to match this prophecy? 
Um, does it mention? That well, that's why it, it doesn't. But it says a young donkey, a young which donkey. potentially could mean the same. Yeah. Okay. I could be. I could be. Um, I think there's something to, like the the tomb that they put Jesus in had not been used before, and so I think there's something about if you're wealthy and, and the king, then what you use is you're not using something that's been used before. Special. <coughs> And I think that may be part of it too. Yeah, and there's there's some debate in Matthew's gospel of this because Matthew mentions that there's two donkeys um, that Jesus rides in on, mm-hmm. and some people say, well, there had to be two because they actually say that Matthew misunderstood Zechariah, which oh, really, no. <laughs> I mean, everybody knows how Hebrew prophecy that it it repeats the same thing. Humble riding on a donkey on a young donkey to fold. It doesn't mean there's two donkeys. It means it's just further explaining the donkey. And it would seem odd to me that Matthew would misunderstand that. So maybe historically there, you kind of if it's a really young donkey, you have the mother there to kind of, it's going to follow the mom or something. So there there are ways to, to make it work. But I don't really like that interpretation that Matthew Misunderstood Hebrew parallelism. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting in this passage how it says, I will remove the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem. So Ephraim, the northern kingdom, Jerusalem being the southern mm-hmm. kingdom, um, which is interesting because like when you read Nahum or some of these other things, it's like, yeah, I'm going to break the back of the Assyrian Empire and mm-hmm. I'm going to scatter them. And um, But it's saying almost, you know, like, y'all need to get rid of your weapons too. Mm-hmm. You need to, you know... If we're going to live in this peace, even if you're this little bitty nation surrounded by enemies, like yeah. you can't be constantly worried about defending yourself. You yeah. have to trust me that I will bring about this new era of peace. Yeah. And so it's you know, interesting thinking, here are these people who just went from Assyria to Babylon to Persia that have just been beat up over the past two hundred years, and Zachariah is saying, Yeah, no, you need to get rid of your weapons. Yeah. It's like you Jesus won't need disarming them. Peter. You won't, yeah, you, you won't know? need him. Yeah. Um, I think in America, that's kind of counterintuitive because we love <laughs> self-defense and we're yeah. all about standing your ground and well, it's, you know, defending yourself. You build the, the bombs, but you don't have to use them. I mean, if we, just, we need them for mutually assured destruction. For <laughs> yeah. That's not a real peaceful no. thing. I mean, it, it does bring peace. It's like the peace... What, Peacemaker in the Old West was the gun, right? Yeah. <laughs> peacemaker. Because you do have peace with it because people are scared of you. Mm-hmm. But that's not real peace. Yeah. Real peace is when we don't actually need the military <laughs> anymore, which would be awesome um, yeah. if we didn't need that. So. Okay, uh, chapter 11. Um, Zechariah says this is the shepherds that he's dealing with. If it seems good to you, pay me my wages, but if not, forget it. So they weighed out my payment, 30 pieces of silver, which is about the price of a slave, for what I read. And this is mentioned also in Jeremiah. Then the Lord said to me, throw to the potter the exorbitant sum. And that's, that's exaggerated. You know, it's not an exorbitant sum. He's being sarcastic. At which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah also deals with a potter and 30 pieces of silver. So there's some combinations here. And in Matthew's 
gospel when Judas takes the money and gives it back to the temple and they say this is blood money we can't put it in the temple treasury they use it to buy the potter's field Um, so there's and he says this is to fulfill what is prophesied in the book of Jeremiah but it's actually a combination of Jeremiah and Zechariah together and it's really more Zechariah than Jeremiah Zechariah is the one that mentions um, the potter uh, so in some ways it fits Zechariah more, but Jeremiah is the more famous one, so maybe that's why Matthew says Jeremiah. It doesn't mention Zechariah, unfortunately. Poor guy. Yeah. <laughs> but again, these are things that happened and had a meaning at the time that, that then are get mm-hmm. typologically referred to uh, later. Okay. Chapter 12 is... Um, I will pour out on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace. And that could be a capital S spirit. That's what that footnote is. It probably should be. And supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And John mentions this when Jesus is pierced on the cross as the fulfillment of this passage. So in the context of Zechariah, he's confronting the the evil shepherds, leaders of Israel, and saying that you will there will be a repentance um, and they will look on the one that they have pierced, uh, abused or whatever, uh, and mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. So I take that spirit, so the house of David, heavens of Jerusalem, reminds me of Acts chapter two. Mm-hmm. Um, when the Spirit is poured out and they preach on the day of Pentecost mm-hmm. and the people repent and turn. Um, and then chapter 14. Let's just, this will give you, we need to have a taste of the actual text. Um, let's do this. Um, a day of the Lord is coming. Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered, divided up within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, uh, half the city will go under So there's going to be a remnant. There's in these prophecies a remnant of Israel that will be preserved. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north, half south. Um, you will flee. So this is where some people are still expecting this to happen, literally. Uh, some people interpret Zechariah this way. To me, this is symbolic of what happens on the day of Pentecost in the New Testament. But um, let's see. Living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of it east, Dead Sea, half of it west. Summer and winter, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. There'll be one Lord in His name, the only name. Um, <coughs> the wicked will be punished. Um, the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, celebrate the festival of tabernacles. Um, on that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses. 
and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty, and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. No longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. So, um, this is a vision of what it will be like when the kingdom finally comes. And uh, to me, this is fulfilled in the church. Um, that's how I think about it. So, the church is to be God's um, messenger to the nations. And we do have. Most of you are Gentiles. Uh, my name's Goldman, so I'm more Jewish. <laughs> um, the Gentiles are worshiping in not literal Jerusalem, but we are all looking to the new Jerusalem. And so this eschatological vision, I think, is fulfilled in a spiritual way. Uh, there are some people who try to say that one day Jerusalem, literal Jerusalem itself, will be is what it's talking about, but I tend to take it more in a spiritual Jerusalem. What do you think? All right. Well, that's Zechariah. It's 14 chapters, so it's a lot. I mean, skip some cool stuff in there. There's one passage in there. I had a slide on it, but where it's when they there's those two olive trees, and then they they create olive oil which feeds this lamp stand, and he says, "Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit." Says the Lord. That's a that's a great verse. It's not by might or power, but by the spirit. So there's there is a sense in which Israel is going to be. You know, powerful, but it's a different type of power. It's not the power of military might or riches necessarily, but it's um, the presence of God through the Spirit working in humble ways. All right. Well, thanks everybody. Um, let me know if you have any other questions. Can talk after class. I have about 15 or 20 questions. Oh, I'm good. I got time. I just want to make sure I get home to the Titans game. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.